Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And, oh, man, round two with the CRO of Catalyst. It's Mark Casaglo again. Nick, why should people listen? This was a creative episode. Well, it was a traditional 30 MPC episode, but we talked about getting creative with your deal structure. And so if you're having deals where it's like you get to the end and buyers are asking for funky things and terms and procurements in there and the CFO is in there and you're trying to figure out how to get your deals done, well, then you need to get this episode done and listen to this whole thing. And a three, a two, a one. If you want to pilot every one of our sponsors, now is your time. Roll the ads. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. All right, Mark, welcome to the show. We start every single interview with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. What up? Yeah, number one, the meeting swap, y'all. You find someone that you can get to at that deal through a mutual connection that accelerates trust and partnership. So like if I was trying to sell Armand, Nick, I would come to you and be like, yo, Nick, I need help with Armand. Help a brother out and like give me an introduction that's dope so that Armand will talk to me 
And because of that interaction, we're hoping that Armand's trust factor like goes way up, way faster than it would normally. All right. So the meeting swap would be this way. Instead of me just calling up Nick or sending Nick a LinkedIn invite or something to be like, Nick, I see that you know Armand. Can you help me out? Why don't we go one step further and figure out what Nick wants? Right now, Nick is running one of the hottest sales podcasts on the planet. He's looking for sponsorships. Maybe what I should do is go to my marketing department and be like, hey, we're looking for some podcast partnerships. Maybe I should go to a couple of friends I know who are marketing and be like, hey, you guys looking for marketing sponsorships? I could take like 10 minutes and probably like, yo, Nick, can you help me get to Armand? And oh yeah, by the way, I got three leads for you on people that you might be able to do with partnerships. Now, listen, now it's mutually beneficial. I'm swapping a meeting for a meeting. And like that actually puts the what's in it for me into Nick's locus so that he can be like, hey, let me go do this really hot for Armand versus just like, yeah, I know it's like karmic. I got to go do it, whatever. And that energy is transferable. So that's the first thing is the meeting swap, man. Like swap a meeting for a meeting. Don't just ask somebody for a referral or help because they owe it to you or you're connected. Like let's actually be equal on what we're doing for each other. Beautiful. I'm salivating for those leads. Let's move on to number two. Number two is he who makes the deal wins the deal or she who makes the deal wins the deal, right? You have to get creative with your buying terms right now and what your terms of your contract are. If you're not, then you're going to leave stuff on the table. What I mean by that is, so listen, you got to make sure that you create a creative deal structure with you and your manager. Get with your manager. Find out like what the craziest stuff they've done with other reps are. Go to your VP. Ask them like what other crazy deals. Listen, we did a deal recently where we did like a 18 month buyout. It was a five year deal. We got them to pay the three and a half years up front. It was a huge cash thing for us. Would we ever thought of that? No, but like we all got in a room and we're like, let's do something crazy, right? So you have to make sure you get something with your manager. Then you have to sell it internally. Everybody knows that acquisition is hard and doing deals is hard. That is absolutely like a bedrock of what it is. But the other thing is, is like create a deal where it's a win long-term for your company. CFOs and VPs of finance are okay as long as you win long-term. But what you can't do is like lose short-term and lose long-term, right? You can't be like, let me give you the first year for free, or let me give you like a six-month POC without something in return. And let me just tell you, a case study isn't something that anybody gives a crap about. So don't be like, I'm going to get you a case study if you do this, right? So make sure that you start to get into creative deal structure and go call your friends. Like ask people who are doing crazy deals right now, get some ideas and make sure you sell it internally. And then I guess we'll talk in a little bit about how to present it to the buyer, right, Nick? Very nice. We will round us out. What's number three? Last one is that B2C mall hustle. Listen, one of my first jobs in college was I ran the sunglass hut in the local mall and I was in the little kiosk thing and homeboy ended up getting one of the top 100 stores in the entire country, entire world, out of 2,500 locations. How did I do that in Podunk, Pennsylvania, where nobody wants to buy anything but $50 Oakleys? Really simple. Is like I went and got people. I was a hustler. I know we've all been walked by the guy that cleans your shoes in the mall or the person that has the miracle face scrub. Like It's time to get a little bit on top of that sales hustle. So let me tell you how you do that in B2B SaaS sales. Real simple. Take your product and then do something with it that shows somebody what it's like to have in there. Let's say that you have an e-com thing. Let's go and make sure that we show what that e-com solution looks like on their e-com site. Like do a little Photoshop work, get with in Google Slides, get with MidJourney if you're like an AI person and figure out what that stuff looks like. Maybe you want them to see like what a dashboard would look like inside their own product. Go in there and get the names right, get the stats right, 
and show them what that looks like. Get that little sizzle going. And then the way you present it is three steps. Step one, tell that prospect that you've done something that's either a video or an image and ask them if they want to see it. Most people will say yes. Then you send them the thing with no ask. Just be like, here you go. And then four hours after you send it or the next day after you send it, follow up, be like, did you see it? Would you want to talk more about it? Three simple steps, a lot of sizzle, but like, I'll never forget sitting out with the guy at the mall that cleans my shoes and they look perfect. I bought the stupid shoe cleaner. Did I want to clean my shoes? No. Did I think I had a shoe cleaning problem? No, but the sizzle was there. So I bought the stuff. (laughs) You know, Mark, it was hilarious. The other day, someone complimented my eyebrows and next thing you know, Nick is sitting at the kiosk getting his eyebrows threaded every single day before this episode. So I promise you folks, it does in fact work. Before we get into eyebrow cleaners and shoe cleaners and all these things, I do want to go back to creative deal structures. So let's talk about that first moment that a rep sees. They're in a tough call and they're bringing in their CRO Mark today. And it's CRO Mark talking to the head of procurement. And the head of procurement is like, Mark, every deal we sign, we want a 90-day opt-out. What do you do in that moment when the ask first comes to figure out what you should do with it? The first concept is give, get. So they're asking you to give something. So what do I want to get back? So the first thing, what do you think the thing I want most is? The deal. Sign now. Yeah. Yeah. If I give you a 90 day opt out, can we get this deal done? If they say no, then that's your chance to be like, well, tell me what we would need to do to get the deal done. And that's when you actually get to the heart of it. But the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say yes. Like right now, buyers have leverage. You have to get creative. If you say no, you're putting yourself at risk. Other people are going to be desperate and say yes. There's things that two years ago, I would tell reps never to do. At Outreach, we thought that pilots were death. And we'd be like, no pilots, never do it. We got enough value. We have enough customers. People know who we are. Like we don't need to run that motion anymore. Guess what? Right now, somebody said, hey, we need to do a pilot. I'm like, yes, do you need to do a pilot? You're going to sign? So that's the first thing is, is say yes. Second thing is give, get what you ask. Third thing is, is like, all right, will this get me the deal? If not, what will get me the deal? So you can get a little bit more at the heart of it. And then the last thing is, is like, if you're going to agree to it, then you have to say, listen, if we're going to do a pilot, then we're going to create one or two things that we have to hit that are doable. If we hit them, will you sign? And if they say no, what do you say? Then why are we running a pilot? I don't understand what's the point of the pilot if it's not to help you make a decision. And so that's where most people right now, I think for pilots, POCs, opt-outs and all that, they're pushing the limits because they know they have the leverage. And what they're doing is they're starting to ask for things, but they don't know how to actually use it to make a better buying decision. And that's what they actually want to do is make a better buying decision. So you have to guide them to that better buying decision, which means you want to do a POC? No problem. At the end of 90 days, we'll be able to do this and this. If we do those two things, do you agree to buy? And if they don't, then you got to find out what the hurdle is because they don't really want a POC then. Mark, I'm curious about that scenario where you talked about setting almost exit criteria for the POC for, hey, you're not opting out, you're buying this thing. And I have to imagine that there are sometimes, even at Catalyst, where you'll get a buyer who will say, yes, this is what we need to accomplish. That's like one step beyond your control of what you guys do, right? Like you guys help, as I understand it, customer success teams, customer success leaders who want to make sure that they're renewing and upselling their customers. And my guess is there's times where people are like, yeah, you know, we want to make sure that we renew X percentage of our customers in this next quarter. And it's like Catalyst 
you guys can help with that, but if their CS team is total and utter garbage or their product doesn't work, like that's one step outside of your control. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you respond in a scenario where their exit criteria is one step past what you guys are actually able to help with? So let's say that they said, hey, we want to increase our renewal rate by 10 points during this POC. So the first thing you have to do is help somebody understand that in 90 days, that's impossible to do. Like, it's just not a right ask. Like nothing in the world can improve your renewal rate 10 points with a lot of certainty that fast. First of all, what is the the time period in which you want to do the POC? And what can you realistically do? And then there's two types of metrics, leading metrics and lagging metrics. Leading metrics are measures of effort. Lagging metrics are measures of execution. There's a lot of variables between leading and lagging, but one thing that someone can always can control is their effort. And so what I would do is I'd be like, listen, you're asking me for a lagging metric in renewal rate improvement. There's a lot of things that could influence that. And my guess is by the end, you might point to two or three things that help cause that, that are going to dilute what I might've done. Instead, why don't we go to a leading metric that shows that the extra effort, the extra activity, the extra leading things that the people are going to be able to do with ours that we can 100% control. For example, let's say that you wanted to say every at-risk account over a 60-day period enters into a data-driven playbook, and we want to make sure that every action in that playbook has been completed for those at-risk accounts. That's effort. I can 100% make sure that that effort is done and we can measure it in the platform and it can be directly attributable to what we're doing in the platform. So that sounds to me, Nick, like a better thing to look at than like a downstream lagging metric because we've got to both agree. If we get the leading stuff right, it should lead to the lagging stuff, right? It should result in the lagging stuff. So if we get that agreed on, then let's work on some leading stuff that we can actually show direct attribution to. That's the number one mistake I see with success metrics or exit criteria is this based on lagging metrics, which should lead to the execution of the leading metric. You got to move POC metrics to leading, not lagging. Mark, one thing that is sometimes concerning to me is I've been in that chair that you were in at Outreach as well, where I was the no pilot guy. I was like the pilot killer. I was the opt out <laughs> killer. Anytime a rep would bring it to me, I'd be like, heck no, you didn't ask the hard questions. They're going to buy anyway. This isn't going to stop them from buying. And now today, these things are coming up more and more and more and more. And a lot of people are telling me I should soften my position. My question to you is, The devil's advocate would say that by saying yes first to that opt-out ask, you may receive another ask, which is a pilot, and another ask, and another ask, because by saying yes first, a savvy procurement person is going to keep pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and digging until they can come up with the hairiest, ugliest deal that Mark is willing to agree to. When a procurement person or a buyer is just throwing more and more and more hairy terms at you, how do you figure out if you take all of them on, if there are certain ones that are important to them? Because I could see this going down a never-ending path of negotiation. Yeah, it's always with the clarifying question or the trial close or whatever you want to call it of, hey, Armand, if we do this, will you buy? And that's how you stop it. Like if they say yes, then you you say, all right, great. If they say no, then you say, well, what would it take for you to buy? Don't forget, POCs and pilots are a conditioned response. Manny Medina, the CEO of Outreach, taught me this a long time ago. A company is a political organization designed and bent not to spend money. 
In order for it to spend money, somebody has to take the political capital they've gained and change that overall default way of running modus operandi into a way that will buy, right? So you have to take something that doesn't want to move, somebody that's willing to risk their personal political capital in order to get it to move, right? So if that's the case, then what we need to do is we need to say, listen, if you want this to work out, if you want this idea to make sense so that your political capital stays in place, we need to make sure that I completely understand like what it would take for you to buy. And then I can tell you deliver that or not. And then I think also like this is where like the step back helps a little bit and be like, hey, you know what? I don't know if we can do that or not. But you know what I do know is we can do this, right? And I think a lot of times when you get a little bit more transparent, when you get a little bit more honest about what you're doing, people get a little bit more into it. So you might say, well, you know, listen, just make it no risk. Listen, we'll do the POC. And if we do what we should do in the POC, you should want to buy. If you do what we need you to do, you should want to buy. But if we don't get where we want to get, that's okay. We'll just walk away, friends, and we'll come back again next year if you're evaluating another solution. Sometimes you just have to like make it okay to fail versus like you're so freaking like hung on to like winning the deal that you have that commission breath or that stink of desperation where you're like, okay, well, if we're going to do a POC, you do this and this, just be like, okay, yeah, we can do a POC. If it works out great, if it doesn't work out, then we're not going to do business. But like, I need to know that that's what you need to see in order to buy. Like, is this part of the buying criteria? Is this, if we do this, will you buy? And I think that's a key question that a lot of reps just don't ask. They just say yes. And when you say yes, then they'll ask again for something else afterwards a lot of times. So we've talked about the opt-outs. We've talked about the pilots in this case. Mark, it sounds like you're doing a lot of creative deals. Are there certain structures or terms that you're seeing come up more and more frequently? And perhaps could you give an example of a funky or creative deal that you used different terms to get that deal over the line? Yeah, yeah. Listen, I remember for a long time, like I would never do anything but pay up front, anything but 30-day net terms. Listen, if somebody says, I want to do quarterly payments right now and I want 120-day net terms, I just say yes. Ultimately, like I need the deal, right? So like, now listen, am I going to do a give get? Yeah, I'm going to give something. So I need to get something back. I might ask for a second year for something like that, right? And I tell all my, all my reps, listen, go get creative. If you need to do it in the moment, I empower you to do it in the moment. If you screw up and do a horrible deal, we'll talk about it. Just don't do it twice. The other one is the buyout. You need to get in front of people and be like, listen, okay, your current provider doesn't end for six months. Let's talk about what we need to do so that you're not double paying. You have to get good at the buyout. And that should be something your company gives you as a tool right now. Hey, if it's three months, you can do this. If it's six months, you do this. If you need to buy it a whole year, this is what you can do. And you should demand from your sales leader, like, listen, it's hard to get deals in the pipeline. There's people that with their current provider that want to switch, but feel handcuffed because they've already put money down or they still owe money. We can get those people in right now if we're aggressive with what we do. And you know, you can say it's a bad deal, but you know what? When they pay that full amount that second year, guess what? It's a good deal then. So like, listen, you should demand from your sales leader some kind of buyout positioning so that you know what to do when you get in front of those people and that you can go get really proactive with them about it. One of the things that really frustrated me when I was a sales rep was 
I didn't know necessarily the extent to which I could flex into some of this creative stuff. I didn't really understand where the guardrails were. And it felt like anytime we did something creative, it was super ad hoc. And for me, when I'm negotiating or structuring a creative deal, like I want to understand where those guardrails are so I know how creative I can get or how uncreative I should get. And I hear you saying, hey, ICs, you got to go demand from your sales leader that you know what that stuff is. And I imagine there's a particularly low EQ way to go demand to your sales leader, yo, I'm not winning any deals. I haven't made a cold call in a, in a quarter and a half, but you need to give me more pilots and opt-outs. Like, what's the right way for an IC to go approach their VP of sales or their CRO and say, hey, can we understand how to get creative here? I think every VP and CRO right now knows how hard acquisition is and is talking to friends that are reinforcing that belief. It's just like sales, lean into what the issue is already. So Nick, listen, I've gotten a couple late stage deals that I lost. I felt like if I could get creative with them and empowered in the moment to make the deal when the iron was hot, that maybe I could have won a couple of them. Maybe I wouldn't have, but like at least I would have felt like I didn't leave anything on the table. What I'd like to do is create like two or three things that I want to propose to you that if I get into a situation again where I feel like I need it, I want you to like just empower me to make it. And if I screw up, like, listen, I'll come pay the cost of it. Like we'll figure out what we need to do on the commission side. But like, can we just try giving me a little bit more empowerment, having two or three extra tools in the moment when they're ready to say yes, I can just get that yes and move on and get the DocuSign signed. That's a way that you think that you could go to your leader and they'd be like, yeah, let's go for it. What does a bad deal look like? A bad deal looks like they're short-term and long-term. Most creative deal structures lose in the short-term, and where they're bad deals is when they lose in the long-term too. A good deal structure is one where they might lose in the short-term, but long-term is good. Let me give you a great example. Let's say that we have a competitor that's charging $100,000 a year. They just did their renewal. They have 12 months left on the renewal. We come in and our price is at 80K, all right? So we're at a 20K difference. What we decide to do is we go in on the first year, we're going to buy you out. So we're down 20K. So 80K plus the 100K buyout gives us down 20K walking into year two, right? So what do we do? We put 10K of that back in year two. So now we did 90K. So now we're still down. We're, now we're up 10K, but we're still down all that other stuff. And then what we did in year three is we went up to 120K. And so now we got back a lot of that revenue. Now we didn't get back everything in year one, but we got back a big chunk of what we did in year one. And by the time we get to year two, we're now over list. And by the time we're in year three, we're not in a really great, highly profitable deal. And so sometimes you can't get it all back, but you should be able to make significant progress and make it a really good, like all-star deal in year two or year three in that kind of a scenario. So don't try to say, oh, well, you know what? We'll give you year one and then we'll do like 80-80. Then it's just an okay deal for years two and three, but you lost everything in year one. So I think that's where you go to your boss and be like, listen, I think I can get us to win in year two and year three if I do this, but we're going to take a bath in year one, but we at least get them in and can get them working and get the revenue flowing. The number one thing that was most helpful for me was actually at Carta, even though Carta's metrics were extremely healthy, one of the highest net revenue retention, they never lost customers. Upfront, because it was a relatively cheap solution, their customer acquisition cost was relatively high when compared to what was sometimes a 3K contract. That said, 
the cost to buy out another 3K contract is not that large when you compare it to the lifetime value of that customer staying for the next five years. And that's where I find most reps screw up is they don't know how to speak the finance team's language. They're speaking the language of, I have to get my commission check. We should win this deal now. The finance team is thinking in, how much is my customer acquisition cost? And how much is this lifetime value of this customer relative to that customer acquisition cost? And so if you can sell the lifetime value of the customer and explain how you might have had to buy a little bit more from this customer upfront, but you signed a three-year deal because of it, that's how you get your finance teams to agree to this stuff is you show them that you understand that the long-term health of this business is aligned with the long-term health of the types of deals your company wants to be selling. Look at this like Armand, like let's say that you have a 3K deal and they'd be a customer for five years, that's 15K of revenue and you have to give away year one for free. So now you got 12K on five years. So 12K on five years is what? 24 K per year, that's like what, a 20% discount? So if you do a 20% discount in year one and you know how hard those discounts are to get back, you're basically netting out over five years the same if you just buy them out for year one and do three grand for years two, three, four, and five. It's the same over five years. And so like why piddle around with where the discount comes from? Let's just give them the full 20% up front and then charge them full price after that. And then they're a very high margin customer. Mark, I'm curious, one of the things that you probably run into a lot is not just the commercial terms that we're talking about, but Catalyst is not a post-IPO dinosaur 40-year-old company with the product that hasn't changed in 17 years. You all are innovating a ton. The product is constantly changing. And I'm sure there are customers who are asking you for new features or product guarantees as well as part of a deal. So do you have a different perspective or how do you deal with the customers that are hoping to essentially make their deal contingent on certain products or features being delivered? That one's a lot trickier, right? Because most product teams that I know are already booked up and maybe the best of the best have surplus capacity reserved for just this kind of stuff. Most I find do not. And so anything that you agree to in a deal like that becomes a trade-off for something else. And so, you know, that really awesome roadmap item might get pushed a quarter if you have to get this thing in to get this deal in. So listen, if you're in a small company, I think it's way easier. You know, you just go to your head of product, you go to your VP of sales, you have a very legit conversation about, is this revenue worth this kind of trade-off? And if it is, you do the deal. If it's not, then you need to be okay and, and walk them off of that, right? This is what I've found. Most deals that require product work, it's fringe stuff. And very rarely do they actually end up using the stuff you build. And so I would really push people on is what they want built, keeping them from getting the result that they want or not. And show them how it's not because a lot of times it doesn't. And if it's critical... Like, hey, they have to have this for a workflow. Guess what that is? That's called a bad fit customer. And let's not sign up bad fit customers that just churn because we can like get the deal over the line with product work. And then we don't really understand what they want. They didn't really understand what they wanted. Then we built something. It's not quite worked. They churn anyway. Everybody's pissed about the deal you did. So like, listen, I think one is if it's key workflow stuff that is like integral to how they do things, 
you probably just need to walk away. If it's fringe stuff, take a second and show them how like fringe stuff doesn't matter to probably getting the result that they want. It's just a preference. So I always tell people like, listen, preference, project and pain are not why people are buying right now. And no, oh my God, people buy on pain. No, they're not. I have a lot of pains. If somebody came and saw for me, I wouldn't buy on right now. I don't care about your preference. Like you might like to work this way. I don't care. I just need you to get the result, right? And a project is something that is interesting, but not valuable enough for me. I have business initiatives that I got to hit. If you show me how what you do helps my business initiative win, we're in. Let's talk. Let's figure it out. But most reps are selling at the project preference and pain level. And when you sell at that level, that's when your deal dies right at the end because the CFO is like not important enough for us to spend money on. So good. Mark, this has been phenomenal, but we're running out of time and we got to move to the final question. And so the final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? So a bad habit that I see a lot of people do is agenda and introduction to start a meeting. Let's say that you have a 30-minute meeting. I did some call reviews a couple years ago, lots of calls. Guess what the average time on a 30-minute call was spent on agenda and introductions? Six, seven minutes. Six to eight minutes. So if we got a 30-minute meeting, and we're spending 20 to almost 30% of that meeting on agenda and introductions, like what, we don't have enough time to do anything, especially if you have to reserve the last five minutes for next steps. That means you got like 12 minutes to actually do stuff in the call. That's not enough time. So my suggestion is, is, if you have a team of people, you as a rep, introduce everybody and you do it in like less than 30 seconds. And then you have your champion prepped to do the same exact thing. Let them go through and introduce all their people. And then on the agenda, send the agenda ahead of time and something. Make sure that everybody agrees to it in an email or just really quickly be like, hey, this is what we're going to do, this, this and this. Nobody needs like five minutes to walk through an agenda. Just hit the items and let's get into it, right? I'm telling you. 90% of buyers turn off when you tell them an agenda anyway. So like, just be like, hey, we're going to do a little more discovery. We're going to show you a demo. Then I'm going to ask you for next steps. All right, let's hit it. Let me ask my first question and just hit it. So one, do all your introductions. Two, let your champion do all their introductions. And three, like, just let's move through the agenda side really quickly. What's in it for you? What's in it for me? If we do this together, what are we going to do next? Boom. I love it. Amazing. Mark, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Your Zoom info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's moving up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom info's go-to-market plays, link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. 
Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Mark Casaglow include number one, the B2C mall sales hustle. Show them what their world looks like with your product right now. That might mean you put your app on their website. That might mean you shave off one of Nick's eyebrows. Whatever you got to do, show them what it looks like now. Number two, say yes first, but then ask when they prompt a creative deal term, Is this what gets you to buy now? If not, keep digging. Number three, a good creative deal loses in the short term, but wins in the long term. So you might take the hit on a buyout today, but that's okay if you keep the customer for three years. And lastly, number four, when a customer asks for new product guarantees in a contract, ask, is what you want built really preventing you from achieving the result that you want? Chances are it's not. Alrighty, Nick, how can people help us out here? Folks, Armand is kidding. I did not actually thread my eyebrows and no eyebrow has been shaved. And I can promise you that is the truth because you can now see me, not just listen to my voice. We have launched the 30MPC YouTube channel. And so if you want to see proof that both of my eyebrows are normal, I implore you to go to the link in the show notes and check out the 30MPC YouTube channel. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes.